All right, so Ephesians chapter four, here's where we're gonna go, and it's gonna take me a second to set this thing up, and I'll tell you why in just a, uh, just a few minutes. Uh, one of the best scenes, one of my most memorable movie scenes, if you take out all the Denzel Washington movies and you, and you put those in a different category, one of my favorite movie scenes is actually the 2012 version. I think they've had probably three or four versions, but the one that I saw, the one that I resonated the most with was the 2012 version of Les Miserables. And that's the one, other than the fact that, you know, when Russell Crowe was singing, other than that, it is a fantastic movie, all right? Fantastic movie. Hugh Jackman is uh, in there. He's not the Wolverine this time. He's actually uh, a guy named Jean Valjean. And this, if you hadn't seen the story and you're like, ah, don't spoil it for me. I mean, it was 2012, all right? So if you hadn't seen it yet, I don't know what to tell you, but this, the, the movie basically goes like this, based on obviously the, the classic story, but the scene early on in the movie, Jean Valjean, early in the movie, he has just come out of hard labor in a prison camp in France and hardened, hardened criminal. So he starts to wander the streets wondering who is gonna take him in, who is gonna actually feed him, who, how is he gonna survive on the streets? And then finally, a bishop brings him into his home, brings him in, I guess, to the parsonage, takes care of him, gives him a place to sleep. And then sometime in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean steals a bunch of silverware from the bishop and leaves. Well, the next morning, the bishop has a knock on his door and it's the police who have caught Jean Valjean with the silver that he had stolen from the bishop. And the police are kind of jokingly said, hey, Mr. Bishop, this guy, this criminal, he says that you gave him all this silverware. They know, they, they're like, there's no way he's telling the truth. And then in a stunning little turn of events, the bishop looks at him knowing that if he says, yeah, he stole this silver from me, that he would go back to prison, but not just back to prison, back to prison for life. He says, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I did give him all of that silverware. And then he looks at him and he says, and Jean Valjean, I am angry with you because you forgot the silver candlesticks as well. And he brings out the silver candlesticks. He says, these things are worth 2,000 francs. How did you forget these? When the police then let Jean Valjean go, and then the rest of the movie is the story of how this hardened criminal who was shown unbelievable grace and mercy transforms and changes into a person of grace and mercy how this bishop showed amazing generosity to Jean Valjean that changed him into a person of great generosity. I wanna say all that to say that what we're gonna look at today, if you're not careful, looks like a, just a list of moral virtues. It looks like checklist church where you just check it off and say, okay, I've done that. It doesn't look that much different than some other secular moral codes that you could look up. But you're gonna see right at the start, the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Ephesians wants you to know this has to be saturated in the good news of the gospel. Because if it's not saturated in that, you're gonna make it to like Sunday evening before you blow all of this out of the water. And so the word that starts our section, our text today, is the word therefore. It's the word therefore. Therefore is just the word that says, I want you to Look back about what I've just said so that you can understand what I'm about to say. That what I'm about to say is based on the reality of what I have just said. And so for three chapters, if you just take the book of Ephesians, there's six chapters in it. The first half of the book 
is nothing about what you are supposed to do. It is all about what God has done. And that if you have repented and embraced Jesus by faith, it is all of the identity, if you will, that has been given to you. This is not an exhaustive list, but here's some of the things that just the first few chapters of Ephesians says about you because of what Christ has done in your relationship with him through repentance and faith. He starts it off by calling you a saint. I know you might not think of yourself as a saint. You might think saint is something you earn. Biblically, a saint is just a person who has been converted, just a person who has repented, embraced Christ, and Christ then has given you his righteousness and you are now a saint. It says that you are holy and blameless before God, that you are adopted as God's kids, you're God's daughter, you're God's son, that you are redeemed. That means the idea of you've been bought back. It it says your trespasses have been forgiven. That is God has taken your trespasses, your sin, your rebellion, your law breaking, and he has removed it from you. It says that you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. That's the third person of the Trinity. We're gonna come back to that in our text. The Bible talks about your relationship with God and the way you experience that. He gave the third person of the Trinity as a promise to say, listen, he's gonna teach you. He's gonna bring things to your mind. The fruit of the Spirit, that is the things that are characteristic of a person who is in right relationship with the Holy Spirit are things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He says you're sealed by him. Chapter two says you have been made alive with Christ. Chapter two says you've been saved by grace. Chapter two says you are his workmanship. It's the word we get our word poem from. That is God is writing a story of God at work, a beautiful poem in your life, whether it be the good times or the bad times, God is sovereign over all of it. And so for three chapters, he is just pounding into them. This is what God has done. This is the gospel. Sit in it, be saturated by it. And then he makes a shift in chapter four and he says, but the implications of that, he starts off and he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. If you have a, I use an ESV Bible translation. The one I have has at the top section, it just simply says the new life, new We talk about this often. When you come to Christ, a lot of new stuff happens. The one thing that doesn't happen right off the bat is a new mind. That's why you have to continually fill your mind with truth. That's the way that God changes you and builds your character, those kind of things. But some of the things that are new, it says you've been given a new birth. You have a new Lord. You have a new heart. You've been made a new creation. You have new desires. You have a new community. You have new power, new freedoms, new life. And what he's going to say is, therefore, act like who you are. Religion says your activity makes your identity. That's religion. What you do will then change how you stand before God. What the gospel says is how you stand before God. If you're in right standing with God because of what Jesus has done, your identity, then that changes your activity. You don't work for a new identity. You work from a new identity. It's like the old classic story. There's an old story when Queen Elizabeth was like a little girl and she was slouched over at the table and using bad manners and her mom looks over there knowing that she is already, she's by birth the Queen of England. She says, listen, sit up. Don't you know who you are? And that changed everything. All of a sudden she started acting like her identity. That's what he's trying to get across because what we're looking at today, there's gonna be a few scabs that are pulled today without a doubt. Maybe that 
Maybe that wound was actually done on the way to church today. But what we're doing is we're talking about what's, how do you have a gospel-centered, how do you have gospel-centered conflict? Now, this is true in a church, but it's applied today to your family. That's what we've been in. We've been family circus. How do you have that? How do you fight well? How do you have conflict? Because you're going to have conflict, but how do you have conflict to the glory of God? So again, no matter what your family structure is like, whether you're a family of many, whether you're a family of one, whether you're single, single again, whether you're part of an extended family, whether you're in a small group here at the church, whatever it is, you will experience conflict. So here's the text. Ephesians chapter four, start in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Again, our closest neighbor is usually our family. Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He's talking about the church in general here. He's about to go into family in chapter five, but right here he's talking about anybody, your relationship with your church family as well. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. We'll come back to that. Be angry. By the way, that is not a command to be angry. It's what's called a permissive imperative. In other words, be angry. In other words, there are times when anger is going to start to well up within you, but he's like, that's the danger zone because he says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give a foothold to the devil. Don't give a base of operations in your family to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, talking about community relationship. Listen to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good, and he gives a threefold description, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion and that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let me, I'm gonna continue. But I didn't, in case I forget about it because I didn't put it in my notes. When you look at your relationship with God, when you look at the role of the Holy Spirit in your life, there's several verbs that are used in the Bible about that. So for example, when you first come to faith in Christ, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. He comes to live on the inside of you. And as amazing as that sounds, that is the third person of the Trinity, third person of the Godhead, comes to live on the inside of the believer to empower you and I to actually live out the Christian life. And so that's when you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. It then says continually, day by day, it's like the next chapter, chapter five, it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That means over and over and over again. You don't get, it's kind of like being hungry. All right, you're gonna eat a meal, but you're gonna be hungry down the road. In the same way, you might be filled right now, but then down the road, you're gonna, it's continually be filled over and over and over again. But two negative verbs that we wanna put in this context, one of them says, one of them says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Holy Spirit is when God tells you to do something and you refuse to do it. When God says, go apologize or uh, go get baptized or go share your story or go invite this person or go ask forgiveness or whatever that is, when you clearly hear, go do something and you're like, you don't do it, that, that quenches him. It's kind of like, oh, just oh, quenches him. But the one he uses here is he says, and do not grieve. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Grieve is a word kind of like you would use at a funeral. It's a word of mourning, which is amazing that the God of the universe would even put himself in position for you and I to actually cause him grief. But he says, and do not grieve. Don't grieve. Don't cause the third person of the Godhead to grieve, to mourn in his relationship with you by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, but let all bitterness and wrath, and how would we do this? He's saying, this is the way you don't do it. So the idea is if these are there, this is the way you are doing it. So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And one of the marks that you have been run over by the grace train is if you are becoming a person of more grace. One of the marks that you've been run over by the mercy truck is that you are growing in the mercy that you show to other people. And so what he does is he spends all that time saying, this is what God has done for you. And then he spends the last three chapters on what you and I are to show because our identity has changed, our activity changes. So then we've got to ask, before he gets to even the family section, he deals with your relationships and particularly how you and I communicate or don't communicate with other people. So just kind of put this at the top of the list. No matter where you are, no matter you go live on an island somewhere, you are going to have relational conflict. You're gonna have relational conflict. You put, if you have a family, you're gonna have relational conflict. If you ever get married, you're gonna have relational conflict. If you think that you can live in a house full of a bunch of sinners and have no conflict at all, then you are fooling yourself. Now, I know sometimes it's easy to think that's just we're the exception to the rule. I thought that for a good while. As a matter of fact, in premarital counseling years and years and years ago, when Lori and I were doing premarital counseling, the counselor's like, hey, you both of y'all have a tendency, because we were like, hey, we've never had a fight. You know, we've, we've been dating a year. Uh, we've never even had a cross word with each other. And the wisdom of the premarital counselor's like, well, that's because you two kind of hold stuff in. You kind of hold stuff in and you don't really let it out. And so what you gotta be careful of is it building and building and building and building and building. I thought, oh, naive counselor, what? I'm so sorry, your marriage is bad. Ours is never gonna have some of the issues that yours has. And so, and this went on for about two years, like one year of dating and engagement. And then our first year of marriage, I was like convinced, ours is the exception to the rule. And then we made up for lost time in like year two. All right, in year two, we started making up for lost time because we were two years, not in year two. And it started off so, I thought fairly innocently. We were a year into marriage, living in a seminary housing. She's going to nursing school. I'm going to seminary. We live in a little 400 square foot apartment there on, in Fort Worth, Texas. I was coming home from work one day. Everything was great. When I left that morning, it was all peachy. Everything was awesome that morning. I went to work. You didn't even have a cell phone back then, so I don't even think we'd talked that day. So what could have gone wrong? So I come in the back door, and at that point they had a little, uh, I had a key, so it popped that little, it popped the handle lock, but then I tried to open it and the, the chain was on. I'm like, that's not good. I know she's home. I see her little Dodge Omni right out there, so I know she's home. And so I was like, hey, 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 I'm home. She's like, you can't come in. And 
That stunned me. I didn't know what to say. You can't come in. I was like, come on, but what, what could be wrong? What could be wrong? Again, keep in mind, keep in mind, uh, keep in mind, I had no sisters, um, so I didn't know how my words were gonna make this impact that they're about to make. So after some cajoling of, come on, baby, let me in, let me in. We got each like, no, 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 no. And then she closes the door, pulls the lock back, opens the door. My first words to my shame, because I looked at my beautiful wife and her hair was a different color than it was when I left that morning. And my first words were, what happened? That was my first word. What happened? That was such a rookie mistake. It wasn't even on purpose. I literally was like, I thought she was upset. I didn't think she liked the hair color. And so hence, I'm like, what happened? In other words, did the product malfunction? Or I didn't know what happened. That started hours, hours of stuff that had kind of built up and built up and built up. And so we spent the next number of hours because we were trying to take literally, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And it's like, all right, we got to get this settled before we go to bed. And it took a long, long, long time. Not a, and it, ended up, it wasn't about the hair. It wasn't about the dumb comment. It was about other stuff that had been building and building. And by God's grace, he's like, we got to get some of this stuff out. So just realize you're going to have some conflict in your relationships. And let me tell you, the, the pro, I want you to listen carefully. I know we have a lot of married couples in here. I know not everybody is, but just real quickly for the married couples. I am quite certain. Some married couples, you are hanging on by a thread. Some of you have gone down the road of divorce and you're like, don't want to go down that road again. But I want you to listen. The problems and the issues that split marriages up are not usually unique problems. They're just not. They're not usually unique problems. They're just generic problems. And the problem is when one or both don't know how to keep the minor problems from becoming major issues. I mean, think about the last fight you had and what started it. 90% of them are dumb. I mean, if somebody from the outside looked at your family, looked at your marriage, and looked at the last conflict you had, 90% of them are just dumb. They're dumb. They're like, you're idiots. Why are you fighting over that? Why are you fighting over the thermostat? I mean, seriously, everybody knows 68 is where it's supposed to be. I mean, why would you fight over that? Or why would you fight over how does this outfit make me look? Or where are we going to spend the holidays? Or your mama did this? Or your daddy did Why would you fight over, over that? Now, I know there's some deeper things involved. I know that. If you weren't here week two, you need to go back and re-listen to that. The question that every man is asking, again, is do I measure up? So when you start doing that in public and all that stuff, he is gonna bolt or he is gonna get bowed up, one of the two. And the lady's asking, am I valued? Am I valuable? Does he value me? Does he like me? Would he rather spend time with me more than shooting at some dumb deer? He's always asking that question. So I understand there's a lot of stuff behind it, but he says, be angry, be angry. Realize you're gonna get wronged at, at times, but don't sin. How can we sin? He's about to get to that. Let me say this, just about general relationships. The bi- I know we live in a high offense culture. I mean, everybody gets offended about everything. Okay. I mean, just some of us just need to toughen up, be honest with you. Just put a cup on and just, just realize you don't, you don't have a right to not ever be offended. Do you understand that? You don't have a right to, I never want to be offended. As a matter of fact, a lot of your Christian maturity is can you overlook can you overlook stuff? Not, not major stuff, but can you overlook stuff? Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook an offense. 
Proverbs 12, 16, the vexation, meaning that, that's what vexation means in the Hebrew. The vexation of a fool is known at once. In other words, everybody knows where that guy stands. Now, I know what we say. We're like, I just like to tell the truth. Number one, that's just because you think it's true doesn't mean it is true. But you don't have to say everything that you see. It says the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. What is he talking about? He's saying when, when you have conflict, you've got like a, a moment right there where you're at a crossroads and you can either go down the bad road or you can go down the good road. And early on, you got to make that choice. And just realize some stuff you just overlook. Like, I get really frustrated when I'm looking for something in the refrigerator and Lori has said, it's in the refrigerator on the second shelf behind the barbecue. I will go in there and I promise you, I am sincere when I do it. I look at the second shelf, I move the barbecue and it's not there. It's not there. And I will look and I'm like, well, maybe she meant the third shelf. I look on the third shelf. I look on the second shelf and it's not there. And it makes me angry when she then gets up and comes over and reaches in and grabs it. And it's like, here it is. I'm like, that makes me angry. Makes me angry. I don't know where it was. It's like you hid that. Like the other night, the other night, I woke up about one in the morning, had a migraine. I, t- I knew it was coming on. So I took some Advil before I went to sleep. But about two, I woke up and it's pounding. And I knew we had some Tylenol, kind of double up a little bit. I knew we had some Tylenol where we keep the medicine. Where do we keep the medicine? Second shelf in the linen closet in the master bath. That's where we keep it. So what do I do? I mean, when your head's pounding and it's two o'clock, you're kind of panicky. And I'm looking in there and I see everything. I see magnesium. I see more Advil. I see every single kind of herbal supplement ever. And I can't see the Tylenol. So I just kind of suck it up. I just stay up. I go make some coffee and it goes away. Don't write me an email about, oh, you're too much on caffeine. Whatever. Okay. I'm just saying it helped. But the next morning I'm like, hey baby, where's the Tylenol? She's like, hey, second shelf in the linen closet in the master bath. I'm like, eh, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not there. I mean, I looked, I looked 10 minutes. She's like, oh, I wish you had woken me up. I wish you, I was like, no, nah, I just was looking. And then like five minutes later, I go back to my sink and she was taking it off the second shelf and put it right on my sink. And I'm like, that makes me angry when, I, when that happens. Now, it is my maturity to say, I'm just gonna overlook the fact that somehow she got invisible Tylenol that I, only a woman can see, I don't know. But what happens is he says, don't sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let the offense stew and become bigger than it actually is. Because what it becomes is, if you get a conflict and it stews, it becomes what the Bible calls bitterness. And then there's a phrase that he says, and do not give the devil, ESV says opportunity, KJV I think says a stronghold. And what you gotta understand, or a foothold, don't give the, don't give the devil a foothold, here's the picture is that a foothold, if not dealt with, becomes a stronghold, and that stronghold becomes a base of operations in which your enemy attacks your family. Because you got all this stuff. I mean, I feel, I, I, I feel so, I have such grief for the families at our church today, and no matter how hard you try, you cannot seem to get any forward momentum. That every step forward seems to be followed then by two steps backwards, and you're like, what is gonna break the cycle? What's gonna break the cycle? 
of one step forward and two steps back and right below the surface, there's so much pain from the past wounds and the past failures that all it takes is like one thing and the whole thing goes off again. What is gonna break that? We're gonna get to that in just one second, but what he says here is don't give him an opportunity. The foothold, think about it this way. I don't know if you had little brothers. I had little brothers, older brother, but I had two little brothers and until they got bigger than I am, I mean, one of them is like 6'5 and like 270, so I don't mess with him anymore, obviously, and I'm a grown man. But I'm just saying back then, I'd pick on them. And we'd pick and I'd pick and I'd pick, and pretty soon they knew that it was about to go down and they would run. And they would try to make it all the way down the hallway before I could chase them and they would go into the room and they'd shut the door. And the, the key thing was whether I could get the old foot in there. If I could get the foot and the door would slam, I knew I'd win because it was only a matter of time before the foothold then became a stronghold, then became a base of operations for me to torment them. So question that I want to kind of push on you today is, is there stuff that has happened in the past that you've never dealt with? And again, that past doesn't have to be some deep, dark secret. It could be. It could be something that happened Friday night on a date when everything was going well and it was just a quick burst of sarcasm or a quick little embarrassment over here. And it's just sitting there stewing. And as it stews, it grows. And he says, do not give, do not give an opportunity don't give a base of operations for the enemy to come in and jack with your family. And here's some characteristics that you might have done that. I mean, everybody's seen some of them where it's right beneath the surface and you're like, why is that guy losing his temper? Why is she doing that? I mean, you've seen it. You've seen the people that are in traffic and everybody's in traffic. Everybody's in traffic. And then all of a sudden, just one thing happens. Bang, bang, bang. You know, they give you the number one sign and all that. And you're like, man, that is a lot of emotion just for like one space. Are you seeing the mama that maybe the kid spills the drink at Chick-fil-A? Well, they wouldn't do this at Chick-fil-A, Chipotle, whatever. They spill a drink and then she just flips out because the four-year-old spilled his drink, which four-year-olds are gonna do. Or the person that complains about everything and everybody. I mean, it's every time you're around them. It's five minutes you're not in it five minutes before all of a sudden it's like, this person is this, and I don't like our neighborhood, and this person doesn't mow their lawn, and that church is whatever, and yada, yada, yada. It's, it's all the time. And then you see it in yourself. Maybe you've said some of these statements before. This is the idea that shows that we are nursing. You're nursing a hurt. You're nursing anger. When you say things like, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. You might, it's kind of like Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if. You might be nursing anger if you say that. You might be nursing anger if you're like, oh, well, I guess you never make a mistake. You're being so sensitive. I'm sorry, but, and then you tell them why you're not really sorry. I'm sick of being the only one who ever says I'm sorry. Or I'm sorry to unload on you, I just am a person that needs to that just needs to vent. You're nursing. Now, I understand everybody kind of, you, based on your family history, your personality, all that kind of stuff, I know we all, we all check the sanctification box off in different order. I understand that. But realize there's probably certain postures based on a bunch of that stuff on the way that you deal with conflict naturally. Now, our goal is not to deal with conflict naturally. Our goal is to deal with conflict supernaturally but naturally, there's going to be a posture that some of you take just based on probably a lot of the stuff you got modeled for you growing up. 
And some of you are just like, uh, some of you are just, again, that some of you are sulkers. You're just a sulker. You get your feelings hurt and you just sulk. You don't want to tell, what's wrong? Nothing, nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. And you're just, you are, you are just like, you are so miserable. And your goal is to make everyone else miserable. And when they are as miserable as you are, then maybe you will tell them. Usually doesn't go super well. On the other hand, you got, you got the lawyers, you got the litigators. Litigators are the ones that you feel real confident you can win this argument. You can win this argument. You're decent with verbal skills. You can kind of think a step ahead. And so you usually win the arguments. It's not that you try to argue when you know you're wrong. You just deep down never really think you're wrong. You just don't. Just deep down. I'm one of those. Like I can out argue you. And as my wife said, I'm not always right, but I'm always sure. All right. I'm always sure of what that is. If you ever realize though, when it comes to family conflict, even if you win an argument, you lose. Husbands, you ever realize that? Even if you win, even if you win that argument, how's that looking when it comes to the next chapter when it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? I'll tell you what Jesus didn't do. Thank God he didn't do this. Thank God he didn't hang on a cross and say, I demand my rights. I can't believe you did this to me. And he says, there's your model. Husbands, there's your model on how to love your wife. Some of you are, some of you are screamers. Some of you are not screamers. And it's amazing, sometimes it seems like screamers and non-screamers, they marry each other. You ever notice that? And what happens is the screamer, when the first conflict happens, the screamer's like, why won't she fight back? Why won't she fight back? And the non-screamer's looking at the screamer like, you have, a de- you have a devil, you have a demon inside you. Something has happened, we need to like call and get some exorcism done. Here's my point, he's like, either way, either way, what he's saying is, uh, Those words need to be like a warning sign to you. Jesus put it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let that sit there for a second. Out of the abundance of the heart, people's like, I don't know why why I said that. I don't know why I said that. That's not me. I don't know why I said that. It is you. It is you. Either you're a liar or Jesus is a liar. I'm putting my money on Jesus. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, it was sitting there, sitting there, and enough pressure came on it and enough conflict came on it where you just said what was already in here. So verse 29 says, knowing that your words are kind of like a warning light that something is wrong, something's percolating. Verse 29, he says, do not let or let no corrupting talk. It's a picture of a spoiled fruit. It's like the strawberries when you don't eat them quick enough and then you look in there in the refrigerator and they're already starting to get soft and squishy and fungus and all that. That's the picture. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good threefold. Good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So let's talk about them real quick. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Think about your family. Let no corrupting talk proceed out of your mouth, except only that which is good for building up. So the words need to be what we're just gonna call uh, redemptive. They're redemptive words. They're trying, to, they're trying to build the person up. Ask yourself the question, is like, is what I'm about to say about to build our family? Proverbs talks about the woman that tears her house down with words, thinking that she's helping, but she's actually tearing the house down. Well, the same thing could be said for a man as well. 
It says, don't let it come out of your mouth and only such is good for building up. A couple things I jotted down. Always attack the problem, not the person. Attack the problem, not the person. Well, the, you're like, the problem is the person. Problem. Here's some things that, how do these go for you? When you use words like, you always do this. How does that, does that ever help? You always do this or you never do that. That is a recipe for, you know what? We're about to have a large scale conflict. Sarcasm oftentimes goes the same way. Condescension goes the same way. You're looking down at them. So that's the question. Is what I'm about to say going to build our family up or is it going to tear it down? It says, as is good as meets the occasion, fits the occasion. It's the idea of timely. Again, just because it's true doesn't mean you need to say it. Or it doesn't mean you need to say it right then. You're like, well, how do I know when is the right occasion? In the fall, we're going to do a series called the book of, it's the book of James. James is the half brother of Jesus. James actually didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after Jesus came up out of the tomb. And so James has threaded throughout his five chapters. He has practical Christianity. How does the gospel flesh itself out? And he's an amazing amount of how much of the letter deals with your words, your mouth, your tongue is what he calls it. But one place in there is super helpful when he simply says it toward the end of the first chapter. He says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So here's some just basic things you might think about is if you don't know what to say, just ask questions. If you still don't know what to say, ask some more questions. If at that point you still don't know what to say, just say something like, what I hear you saying is this. So just practice the fact, just listen to what they are saying will solve like a multitude of unnecessary arguments, misunderstandings, things that she didn't even mean or that he did not even mean. And then it says this, and it says that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, this is super key. I don't think there's a person at church today that wouldn't say, I want my home to be a home that's filled with grace. I want God's grace on my home, and I want the posture that we have toward each other to be one full of grace. So what he says here is he says, with that grace, he says, so that it will be give grace to those who hear. So here's what you've got to realize. At some point in your soul, you have to realize that those who hurt you will not learn the wrongness of what they've done typically by you being harsh back. Maybe that will change the behavior for a short amount of time. Think about harshness almost being like the law. It's gonna point out what you did wrong, but how did God change your heart? He changed your heart by God's grace. The book of Romans in Romans chapter two says, it was the kindness of God that led you to repentance. It was God saying, you know what? I love you, I paid for your sin. Just turn to me, turn away from your way of trying to make life work and repent and turn to me. 
receive the kindness that I'm freely offering you. And that changed your, that changed your heart. So again, yelling and negative consequences and all that stuff. I would say my life has changed more by the grace that my wife has shown me over the years. The grace, the graciousness, more, way more than any big time conflict. Maybe, maybe she would say the same thing in some of the grace that I've tried to learn and to show to her as well. But here's what it says in the last three verses. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let me remind you what I said at the start. In many ways, your relationship with God, your experience with the Lord, your experience with the Lord. I know when we talk about the Holy Spirit, Baptist, you get, if you came from charismatic background, you're pretty fired up. If you came from Baptist background, you're scared to death. But the Holy Spirit is in so many ways the way that you actually experience the Christian life. As I said before, think about, think about those nine characteristics. Everybody wants those, but what does it say? It says they're fruit. They're, they're things that come organically from a right relationship with God. And here's what we learn. Again, it says you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. You can quench him by not doing what he tells you to do, but here he says you can grieve him, and it's right on the heels of the way you and I talk, the way you and I communicate, the way we behave during conflict. Like, what's the solution? A real quick discipline that I learned probably when I was a two-year-old Christian is called spiritual breathing. Spiritual breathing just means this, when God convicts you, and by the way, when you are convicted, conviction just means the fact that you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that, or man, I should have done that and didn't, or I shouldn't have taught, even right now when you're at church, and God's like, you know what? You need to make that right. You need to make that phone call. You need to write that letter. You need to forgive this person. You need to apologize, whatever that is. Conviction is the grace of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God that's like, you did it. You did that. You did that. Turn away from that. And so spiritual breathing is you kind of, you, you exhale. You exhale the sin. God, this is what I've done. And then you you just spiritually, you inhale the grace of God, the promises of God. The Bible actually has one other verb. It says, and walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, the normal way. And here's the deal. You, sometimes you're not connecting the way you're dealing with conflict in your family and your lack of joy over here. You think they're disconnected. You can't understand that your lack of joy in your Christian life and your crabbiness and your irritability and your negativity toward everybody else you don't understand. That is connected to the fact that you're just simply grieving the spirit of God. And the way you do that is not just simply go, oh, this is not religion where I'm not up here saying you're bad, God's good, try harder, come back next week. That's not it. The beauty is what you just sang a little while ago. Jesus paid it all. So if Jesus paid it all, what is left for you and I when we repent and run to God? What's left? If Jesus took all the judgment, all the wrath, all the justice on himself, and you're in Christ, what is now left for you? Grace, that's what's left. Mercy, that's what's left. So here's the way he ends it. He says, let all, passive voice, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Let me emphasize this again. If you just try to 
kind of suck it up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps like, I'm going to be a better husband and I'm going to talk to my wife better. It's not going to last, bro. That's why he says let. In other words, you got to let the gospel saturate this. And here's what he says. Let bitterness, let bitterness, we get our word cutting from that. I mean, that's what bitterness does. It cuts the inside of you up to shreds. All bitterness is basically is a wound that has been nursed for a long enough time that it's become infected. And if it's infected, all you got to do, if you have an infection somewhere, all you got to do is touch it and it hurts. That's why when you blow up over some little minor issue, it wasn't the minor issue. It wasn't the fact that Scooter spilled his milk. It's the fact you're an angry person. Wrath and anger, that's simmering just below the surface. Clamor and slander, that's relational strife. That's when you vilify other people. That's when you get everybody in your connect group on your side so they will dislike your spouse because you guys are going through a divorce. Colossians has a parallel passage that says, put off or get it off of you. I told you a few months ago, I put a hat on that was in the garage and there were spiders in it. And all of a sudden I was like, I put it on and these spiders were biting my head. It's like, get off me. I mean, I was, I was just like, I gotta get this stuff off of me. That's what you need to be feeling right now when it comes to these adjectives, these descriptors. It's like, I don't want wrath. I don't want bitterness. I don't want to be an angry person. Well, how does that work? Here's the way he ends at verse 32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me say it again. What is going to break the downward spiral in your family? My heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to you. The reason it goes out to you is because you're frustrated because you've tried super hard. You try to do this technique and that technique and it doesn't, doesn't seem to ever work. And again, one step forward is met by two steps backwards and you're finally, you just one is like, hey, you know what, I'm just gonna, you're close to this. Like, nothing, what, is gonna, what is gonna allow us to progress as a family? And let me say without a doubt, I know some of you have tried it. Some of you have tried it and thought it didn't work. Some of you are like, you didn't try it the right way, but without a doubt, here's what he said. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The answer, the answer, the, the foundational answer is forgiveness. Now we talked about it in the Advent series, so I'm not going to go down this road that long, but just realize this is about family forgiveness particularly. Now it might be your church family, might be your church family, might be your prodigal, might be your ex, might be your current spouse, might be your parent, might be your sibling, might be your whatever it is. And by way of reminder, forgiveness is not a bunch of stuff. Forgiveness is not denying something happened. Forgiveness is not enabling them to hurt you more. It is not forgetting that it ever happened. It is not necessarily reconciling. It certainly doesn't mean trusting necessarily. What it is, it is canceling the debt that is owed to you. It's you saying, because of the grace that God has shown me, they don't owe me anymore. If I get that apology, if I get that letter, if I get that phone call, if I get that whatever, I'm not waiting for it. I'm not even expecting it. And as I talked about in December, a lot of this stuff, they, a lot of this stuff, they can't even do it. A lot of this stuff, they don't even know. Some of the people that you're nursing, some family stuff, they're not even alive anymore. So it's not about you and them. It's about you and God and you releasing them and you getting free. You holding on to that? It's like, what they say, it's like you're drinking the poison and thinking it's going to hurt the other person. It just doesn't work that way. And so he's giving you a chance to get free from that as God in Christ forgave you. The best quote when it comes to family dynamics and forgiveness, 
was in a book called Gospel by my friend J.D. Greer. And here's a phrase that a marriage counselor told him that I want you to, I want you to look at. And the phrase, that, the phrase that in some ways saved his marriage is first sinner, first sinner, second sinned against. First a sinner. This is just the posture for your family that you recognize First and foremost, I have sinned against God way more than anybody's ever sinned against me. And because of the grace God has shown me, I am then going to release them from what they owe me. Now, if reconciliation happens, that's a bonus. If it changes them, that's a bonus. You're doing this for the glory of God and for the goodness of your own soul. So here's what we're gonna do. I know that today wasn't particularly fun, Okay, because you're dealing with conflict. Anytime you think about conflict, you don't have to turn that many pages to go back. And conflict's not fun. But if we deal with it in a godly way, it actually can be a step toward intimacy. But here's what I'd say. We're gonna, when we respond, here's, here's how we're gonna respond. We're gonna respond by you know, coming and praying. Now that might run the gamut. You might have a burden for your family. There might be just a burden. You're like, I, are just families struggling right now? It's not even related to the message. You come and pray for your family. Some of you know there's an action step God wants you to do based on the text today. There's a phone call you need to make. There's an I'm sorry you need to say. There's a forgiveness to the prodigal. They're not doing what you raised them to do. And you've been harboring that. You don't answer their calls when they call. All of that stuff. Listen, I get it. But what you want to do, you want to, be, you want to walk out of here free. And so you come up and you just give that burden over to the Lord. You just give the burden over to the Lord. God, I don't, I'm, tired of, I'm tired of carrying the burden of unresolved conflict in my family. Maybe you don't even know how to verbalize it. It's just, you know what? I need, I need grace in my family. I need grace in my family. As I said before, if Jesus paid it all, if Jesus paid it all and you're in Christ, then what is left for you but grace? And who does God pour grace out on? He says it over and over again. He says it in the epistles. He says, God stiff arms the proud, but he pours out grace to the humble. And so my encouragement to you is humble yourself, get on your knees before almighty God at an altar or a stage or whatever, and just say, God, I need your help. God, I need your help. I need your help. Others of us, we just need to sing our guts out. We need to sing Jesus paid it all. We need to sing it like we believe it and we need to bathe in it. We need to sit in it. Others of us need to just kind of get on. It's like, you know what? I'm going to come sing and bring. I'm tired of robbing God. I'm tired of keeping my stuff. I want to be part of the mission. And so I want you to do this. Why don't you stand to your feet and I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to come sing and bring. Father, I want to pray for the families, particularly the families that it just seems they can't get the forward momentum because right beneath the surface is the pain of past wounds and past failures that... Just blow everything up. I want to pray today that you lead them, give the spiritual courage to lay that down, just to lay that down, to trust in the fact that you did pay it all. You paid it all. You paid it all. Got to pray for those folks that don't even know if they're a believer, that they would say yes to you. They would surrender to the Lordship of Christ right in their seat, right as they sing. It's like, I surrender to the Lordship of Christ, that what he did on the cross, that counted for me. And I want to be a disciple. I want to be an apprentice. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Got to pray that here in three or four minutes, there would be stories that started to be written because one act of obedience, one act of humility, one act of prayer, one act of intercession. God, thanks for the stories just like Alicia's that you, you are writing.
pray you'd write some more in the next few minutes. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.